0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Breast Cancer Center's team, who now offer hidden scar breast cancer surgery. This is a new approach to achieving optimal cosmetic results after breast cancer surgery. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org phbcc.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. And welcome to another Smart Talk road trip. Today we're coming to you from Willow Valley Communities in Willow Street, Lancaster County. All of our Smart Talk road trips are unique and have that energy provided by being face-to-face with a live audience. But today's program is special in another way, the subject matter. This September, the nation's most renowned historical documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns, is producing a 10-part 18-hour series on the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War features testimony from nearly 80 witnesses, including many Americans who fought in the war and others who opposed it, as well as Vietnamese combatants and civilians from both the winning and losing sides. We have a trailer here where you can hear the audio of uh, Ken Burns speaking and some of the people who participate in the film as well.
2: I think the Vietnam War drove a stake right into the heart of America. Unfortunately, we've never moved really far away from that, and we never recovered.
3: There
4: was no way we could avoid telling this story. Wars are so extraordinarily revealing, obviously, of the worst of humanity, but as it turns out also, the best of humanity.
5: There's been a lot done about this subject. Books documentaries, feature films, novels. I mean, it's not like no one's ever tried. But it remains this kind of unfinished business in American history.
4: So it's time now. The decades have passed. And it's important now to go back and try to understand it.
2: The real heroes are the men that died. To see these kids who had the least to gain, and yet their loyalty to each other, their courage under fire, uh, was just phenomenal and you would ask yourself, how does America produce young men like this?
0: We wanted to get to know the people, we wanted to get to know the place, we wanted to spend time there. Trying to figure out how to do what we do in Vietnam was really a challenge.
5: There's no one American side. And then within Vietnam, there's the winning side, there's the losing side. They were our enemy and our ally. There's just so many different perspectives, we tried to bring them all together.
4: This is without a doubt the most ambitious project that we have ever undertaken. PBS is the only place it could have been done.
5: I think the country's ready to have the conversation we've never had about
4: the war, which we really need to have. This film is not an answer, but a set of questions about what happened.
6: My father was very happy We're such a small and poor country, and the Americans uh, have decided to come in to save us, not only with their money, their resources, but even with their own lives. We were very grateful. We thought, sure enough, with this power, the Americans are going to win.
2: The war, by 1966, began to impact the middle class because the draft calls had to be enlarged. They couldn't get enough people to volunteer or draft people out of the working class. They started drafting people out of college. And that's when the anti-war movement shifted from a moral movement to a self-interest movement. I was at the post office
6: mailing something. I asked the clerk, how do they let you know if your son is wounded? It was very hard for me to form those words, but I just felt, I've got to know. I just felt so suspended in space and anxiety. And the man said,
1: now, don't worry, they'll tell you. The series itself premieres on Sunday, September 17th on WITF-TV. But you can get an advanced look at the film this Memorial Day weekend on WITF-TV. Watch a special 30-minute preview Sunday, May 28th at 9.30 p.m. It features interviews with the filmmakers, behind-the-scenes footage, and exclusive clips from the series. Again, that's this Sunday, May 28th at 9.30 p.m. on WITF-TV. Now, we've just heard a few of the voices from the Ken Burns series. WITF is also highlighting voices from South Central Pennsylvania. WITF's Vietnam War Stories Project is asking Vietnam veterans, anti-war activists, family members, conscientious objectors, Vietnamese Americans, and other members of the South Central Pennsylvania community to share their memories of the Vietnam War. Select stories may be chosen to be featured in an upcoming WITF documentary. Share your stories of the Vietnam War at Vietnam.WITF.org. I should mention that today's Smart Talk Road Trip live remote broadcast is supported by Roof Advisory and Willow Valley Communities, just a beautiful facility, location for uh, producing this uh, broadcast, and we are very uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here today, and we've been welcomed at uh, uh, Willow Valley Communities. But uh, we have a show here, and uh, we're going to be talking about Vietnam, and I want to introduce our first guest today. He's Dr. Robert Kodosky, who is an Associate Professor of History at Westchester University. Dr. Kodosky, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you for having me. And as we start, for the veterans that I see in the audience, I'd just like to say welcome home and thank you. Well, that's something that has been about 40 years too late
1: for for many uh, veterans of the Vietnam War, and it's something we're going to talk about very often during uh, the series and the WITF war stories. I want to go back because you teach many of your students about a time Mm before American involvement or full-scale combat involvement in Vietnam. And this is something that uh, probably not a lot of Americans think about, know about. I mean, most Americans, you ask them about the Vietnam War, they'll probably point to 1965, 1966, even though uh, you know during the Kennedy administration it kind of ramped up, uh, and go to 1975 with the out of the fall of Saigon. But it goes much further back than that, doesn't it?
7: Oh, absolutely. Um, The Vietnamese had been fighting for their independence for a long time, first against the Chinese and then against the French for nearly 100 years. Uh, Nguyen Ngoc was Ho Chi Minh before we knew him as Ho Chi Minh, and he first petitioned for Vietnamese independence after the First World War, Uh, was actually quite a fan of, of America's founding fathers, Uh, Because if you think about the American colonies, they had driven the British out. Um, After the Second World War, the French wanted to go back into Vietnam. And um, the United States supported that, despite the fact that the United States worked with the Vietnamese during the Second World War. um, Because the Japanese had invaded Vietnam, and of course we were at war with Japan. So we had an OSS team that worked with OSS. OSS. Uh, the Office of Strategic Services, okay. sort of a predecessor to the CIA, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first American casualty was actually a uh, mistaken uh, his, Lieutenant Colonel Albert Peter Dewey in September of 1945, uh, an OSS agent who was mistaken as, as a as a French guy that the Vietnamese shot, but they declared independence and the OSS encouraged uh, Ho Chi Minh to uh, petition Harry Truman um, for support of, of Vietnam, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. But the new fear for the United States was communism after the Second World War and particularly the United States was susceptible to the, the argument that the French made and focused on Europe that if the economy didn't uh, recover, then there was a potential um, you know, possibility of communism in Europe. So the United States supported the French in, in Vietnam. We spent about a billion dollars and we opened offices there in 1950 after China became communist and of course after North Korea invaded South Korea.
1: You mentioned Ho Chi Minh. We were talking before the show and uh, you were talking about uh, uh, someone that you knew and had uh, uh, heard heard speak and that someone who admired Ho Chi Minh, Americans who have a sense of history and hear the name Ho Chi Minh, they hear about the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they think right away of communism and North Vietnam,
7: but that wasn't always the case. Well, certainly communism was part of it, but he was really attracted, uh, you know, as a nationalist, right? I mean, someone who wanted Vietnamese independence, and those OSS guys respected that. Um, We were also talking before the show that one of my students, uh, he's a student veteran, and he was drafted uh, into the U.S. Air Force in 1950. His uh, hopefully he's he's listening now. His name's Lowell Garden Hour, and I'd like to say hello to him if he's out there. Um, While he was in Korea in 1954, he received orders. uh, They were redacted. uh, That he and his crew, he was in charge of an airplane called the Hawk, were shipping out, and they didn't know where they were going. Well, they went to the Philippines. And when they were in the Philippines, they met with French and American intelligence, and they were issued sidearms and told, anything happens to you guys, we don't know you. Uh, When they came out, the American insignia on the plane was gone, and it was replaced by French insignia. And they flew to Haiphong and supported the French at Dien Bien Phu. Uh, Later, they ended up in Saigon because it got a little too hot for them in Haiphong. Um, And he always... He's he's, he's a student at Westchester University, a remarkable guy, and he's got some amazing photographs that we were looking at. So that was 1954. Correct. uh, Still
1: almost a decade before full-scale American involvement, but Americans were involved as advisors. Would that be the accurate way to describe it?
7: Well, yeah, absolutely. Because after the French left, uh, the agreement between the French and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam was that there would be elections throughout Vietnam. And the fear from the United States was, of course, Ho Chi Minh would win the election. Uh, And we worried about that communist influence. So consequently, uh, we supported Ngo Dien Ziem. Ngo Dien Ziem was someone who uh, John Kennedy liked a lot. Um, He was very much an anti-communist, and uh, through a guy, his name was Edward Gary Lansdale, who was a former OSS guy, helped build the government of Vietnam in in the South, and we supported that. Uh, We had close to twenty thousand on the ground by the time of Xiam's assassination in 1963. So, you know, that advisory support. The initial involvement goes back to Truman, but it just kept building through the 1950s. Let's talk about the mood of the
1: country. 1963 is most noteworthy for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, But during the Kennedy administration, as you mentioned, there's 20,000 Americans on the ground now. The mood of the country, we still kind of were in that 50s sense of innocence until the Kennedy assassination. And... I don't know if you can point to that as saying, being a turning point, but the nation turned into what we think of the '60s after that. Talk about the mood of the country, if you would, in the early '60s, from and, and making that transition from the Kennedy to the Johnson administration.
7: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the mood of the country remained very much anti-communist because, you know, as, as part of that assassination. Uh, There were worries through the 1950s about the Soviets closing uh, the gap with the United States. I mean, the inauguration of the space program was because of Sputnik. Constant worry about spies in the United States through the 1950s. So consequently, um, you know, as Vietnam became more on America's radar... Americans largely supported you know the initial actions taken by the Johnson administration there um, Johnson was really i mean he he was not a fan of getting involved in Vietnam, but for him I mean it, he was really looking at domestic politics I mean he had an election to win after Kennedy was assassinated, and he did not want to be painted as someone who was going to be soft on communism.
1: So, let's move ahead, and been, we're jumping through years here, sure. but hitting on the, some of the highlights. The Gulf of Tonkin, mm-hmm. now, you say that uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson didn't want to be soft on communists, but uh, describe what happened accurately at the, the Gulf of Tonkin and the Gulf of Tonkin resolutions that ramped up American involvement in Vietnam.
7: Well, the Johnson administration and the Secretary of Defense, Robert S. McNamara, were supporting uh, South Vietnamese DeSoto missions into the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, Of course, again, this was all covert, and it was part of a a number of covert operations that were going on. Um, Of course, it it becomes uh, used politically that you know, shots are fired at the Lovejoy and the Maddox, and it's it's the two resolution, naval vessels, right? Two yeah. naval vessels that initiates first the airstrikes, um, that that really enable Johnson to win the election, and then of course later, first Flaming Dart, and then by nineteen sixty five, you know, Rolling Thunder begins, um, but that of course was. I mean, you know, we, we know now that the reports of that, a lot of it was very misleading, and, and in some cases, the shots hadn't been fired.
1: But again, Lyndon Johnson, the president, pushed that big time, and uh, it was portrayed – often the Gulf of Tonkin resolutions is compared to United States involvement in Iraq – Uh, And I don't know whether you can make actual comparisons there, but that there was some inaccurate information that the the Congress got and many Americans got. So after the Gulf of Tonkin, the resolutions are passed. Uh, How many people are on the ground? How many boots are on the ground? And when does it really begin to ramp up and get hot in Vietnam?
7: Well, I, I mean, first, uh, Marines go, on and I mean, they're told essentially to defend the perimeter, and of course, you know, they do, but it becomes something that, you know, becomes an engagement and more, I mean, hundreds of thousands within um, only a couple of years. But one of the things that I heard in the Kent Burns report, I mean, the draft becomes an issue for many Americans, but again, stressing that support of the war at first the bulk of the fatalities and the bulk of those who served in Vietnam were actually volunteers. Mm, Which a lot of people
1: probably don't know. 1968, though, was a turning point in many historians' eyes that uh there was Milai, which we can talk about a little bit, and that 's really when the protest across the country started uh, starting taking off, and you had some high profile Americans who were coming out in opposition to the war. talk about sixty eight
7: well I mean Americans start to perceive I think a credibility gap, but one we used air power a lot in Vietnam, so if you, take all of, if you take the tonnage of bombs that we dropped during the Second World War, and that includes the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and multiply it by four, that's the bombing that we did in Vietnam. So it was quite a lot, and then of course, on top of that too, Operation Ranch Hand was the use of Agent Orange, uh, chemical warfare beginning in 1962, and the escalation of American troops in 1967 again Lyndon Johnson with the idea that you know there's an election to win because he was dedicated to domestic reform and the great society and all of the rest uh, you know brought William Westmoreland back to the United States and of course the question for Americans why isn't this war over I mean William Westmoreland country. was the
1: commander in, correct, in Vietnam
7: Correct correct And the problem was, is there really wasn't an understanding of Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese politics, and the war had sort of become a war of attrition. In other words, we're here to count the number of KIA or killed in action of Vietnamese communists. And so those numbers kept going and going and going and going, and Westmoreland tells the American people in the fall of 1967, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And then in 1968, in January, of course, the Tet Offensive Tet takes offensive. place. And it, it wasn't militarily successful. I mean, the general uprising fails. However, sometimes we think of war as just a battlefield thing. I mean, it 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 moves into the psychology and it moves into the way people think. And certainly the media is part of it as well. So consequently, this shock that we're winning the war, we're winning the war, where did all of these communists come from? Uh, the credibility gap becomes very apparent.
1: And when you talk about the media, media lie, as I mentioned, where uh, there was an American unit that uh, killed—and I don't have the number off the top of my head—but a number of uh, civilians, it was in you know the dozens, number of civilians, including women and children, mostly women and children, and those. Photographs made their way back to the United States, which just shocked many many Americans, and the war that had a big
7: big impact at the time. Doctor- well, and I, I mean, and I would encourage I would encourage people interested in that to go back to the American experience in the Philippines at the beginning of the 20th century, because you see similar kinds of things where Americans on the ground are faced with an enemy that's not going to fight the way Americans want to fight. And consequently, that creates a lot of confusion on the ground and it creates a lot of frustration and it creates a lot of anxiety where, I mean, who's who's the enemy here? And the saying becomes, if it's Vietnamese and it's dead, it's V.C. And it leads to that kind of thing. Mm. Dr. Robert
1: Kadoski is Associate Professor of History at Westchester University. Dr. Kadoski, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless smart talk is also supported by pinnacle health it's 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine information at pinnaclehealth.org/myheart. slash my heart
1: welcome back to willow valley communities we are on a smart talk road trip and our topic is vietnam coming up uh, this september ken burns his latest and as you, you probably heard earlier in the program uh, maybe the biggest project that uh, Ken Burns and his team has ever done. Ten parts, 18 hours on the Vietnam War, maybe the most complete uh, documentary ever on on the Vietnam War. Uh, and again, we're, we're kicking this off today at Willow Valley Communities. Beautiful facility, and I have to say to everyone if you ever have the opportunity to tour Willow Valley communities, uh, I encourage you to do that because we're in a theater that is just lovely, and uh, everything here is just I don't know. I've heard so many people who haven't been here this morning say, Oh, I'm so impressed with the Willow Valley communities. So, I want to again thank Willow Valley for uh, having us here for this Smart Talk road trip. We have several residents of Willow Valley communities on our program today. uh, to talk, they have uh, some tie to uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, first of all, we have Paul and Sylvia Hollinger, they're Willow Valley residents, and a couple who sponsored Vietnamese r- refugees. Uh, Hollingers, thank you very much for being with us today. You're and we're going to talk with you in just a few minutes, but first, we're going to join, uh, have uh, speak with uh, who are joined by Jerry Zacharias, who's a Willi- Willow Valley resident and retired U.S. Navy captain. Captain uh, Zacharias is a retired Navy captain who flew 87 missions in Vietnam flying an A6 intruder. He received the Navy Cross for his extraordinary heroism on February 24, 1968. Uh, Captain Zach Rice, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. What happened on uh, February 24,
4: 1968? Well, we were on Yankee Station flying strikes into the North uh, sector of North Vietnam. We got a message for Commander Task Force 77 to uh, execute a strike against the Hanoi Port Facilities. And uh, they said because uh, uh, the Enterprise, which was our sister's uh, carrier on Yankee Station at that time, had only been on station for one day, they said make it a joint strike from Enterprise. So we launched two aircraft, flew to Enterprise, did our mission planning for the strike to the... Uh, Hanoi Port Facilities, right in downtown Hanoi, and uh, with the uh, air crews from Attack Squadron 35 on Enterprise. Uh, After our mission planning, we uh, hit the sack early, had an evening meal, and then hit the sack early. And uh, then we uh, had Breveley at about 12.30, uh, got dressed, went to the ready room of VA-35 and rebriefed the mission to Hanoi and uh, manned our airplanes about 1 o'clock and uh, launched about 1.30. Uh, I, on uh, I was on the catapult at uh, 100% power, and uh, when they launched me, uh, my primary attitude reference, which gives, tells me which way is up, at nighttime you can't see anything outside the cockpit, it turned upside down. Uh, I went right to my standby gyro, which is a small gyro right here on the, uh, on the instrument panel. Uh, climbed up, to, out, ro- rotated to a climbing attitude, put up my landing gear and flaps, and then uh, headed for the tanker, which was over Enterprise.
1: Tanker, for your fuel?
4: Yes. Okay. Get, get, a, get extra fuel for the long flight to Hanoi. I got up to the tanker, I was, because of my system problems of the uh, primary attitude reference turning upside down, I was the last one to tank, I went to plug into the tanker, all the lights in the tanker went out. It had electrical failure and could not transfer fuel. It's a
1: bad day, isn't
4: it? Bad day. <laughs> I was, this, that's the second thing that happened in the first 10 minutes of it's this flight. Really? And I thought, this isn't going to be my night. Well, I... With no primary attitude reference and no extra fuel for the long flight to Hanoi, I thought I'd better talk it over with my bombardier navigator to see what our options were. After our talk, we decided to try to do an airborne alignment of the inertial platform so I could get my, inertial, uh, my primary attitude reference back. 22 minutes later, we got a uh, ready light on the inertial platform. I checked my fuel. It's going to be close, but I thought we had enough to do it. To go to Hanoi. To go to Hanoi. Okay. So we headed into the uh, uh, mountains southwest of Hanoi. Uh, During a letdown, I could hear the, uh, I call it the crickets chirping. That's a surface-to-air missile radar starting to track us. I leveled off at 200 feet in the flatlands of the Red River Delta. And uh, I was going about uh, 450, about 350 knots, about 407 miles an hour. I was fairly comfortable at 200 feet inbound, and I saw two missiles lift off the lifeline of the clock uh, coming toward us, and my missile warning receiver uh, and a a missile warning light start flashing in your eyes, and you get a warbling tone when that missile is airborne, and it's getting guidance signals. You get that noise noise in your headset. Uh, I told my Bombative Navigator I'm going down to 100 feet. I got down to 100 feet. I had already gone to full throttle. I'm I'm doing about 500 miles an hour now. I'm at 100 feet, and I got down to 100 feet, and I uh, could see things whizzing by the left-hand side of my cockpit. I said to myself, geez, those must be farmhouses. Just then, my bombardier navigator said, you're level at 50 feet. I said, Roger, going back to 100 feet. I watched those missiles coming toward us, and uh, when I thought they were close enough, I rolled it at 89 degrees of bank. I dropped chaff. Chaff is sh- strips of aluminum foil, and they uh, provide uh, some protection from the missiles. Uh, hope, hopefully, the missiles would explode in that chaff and not on the, uh, on the aircraft. And I did a high-G turn. That's a 6G turn to the right. And one missile, went, one missile coming at us went right through the space. We just vacated. The other exploded underneath the aircraft, uh, buffeted it violently, and put a small hole in our left wing. And then my bombardier navigator says, you're heading to the target. is 354 degrees. I rolled out on 354 degrees, doing about 515 miles an hour, approaching Hanoi. There's so much anti-aircraft fire going up that I could see the outline of the Red River flowing through Hanoi. And we're bombing the port facilities at Hanoi. And I know we're right on track for the target. At 4.20 in the morning, I dropped my 18 Mark 36 destructors. Those are magnetic aerial mines, an area denial weapon, on the port facilities. Uh, our, the two airplanes before us, VA-35, were going, after they dropped their weapons, were going right up the Red River uh, and staying over that Red River to are north of the city. We were not going to follow them because we figured everybody's going to be shooting over the Red River by the time we got there. We're going right over the center of Hanoi at 400 feet. A roll to the outbound heading of about 2, three, uh, two three, five degrees after bomb drop, And uh, I could see lots of anti-aircraft fire shooting straight up in the air. At nighttime, it's strictly barrage fire. They're shooting straight up in the air, hoping you fly through it. And uh, I'd pick two anti-aircraft sites, fly right in between them. As soon as they passed, I'd pick two more and fly right in between them. And... Uh, uh, as the anti-aircraft fire started to dim- diminish on the outskirts of Hanoi I turned to my bombardier navigator and said, Hey, Mike, we're home free. No sooner than those words left my mouth than the missile warning receiver went off.
1: Now yeah, you jinxed
4: it. <laughs> I, said, I said, how? Oh, I immediately thought, How am I going to know when to start my evasive maneuver? Those missiles are coming from behind us, and I can't see them. Well, it didn't take long to find out. As... Uh, As they approach the aircraft with that long long rocket plume from those surface-to-air missiles, it starts getting light in the cockpit. I said, I think it's time. I rolled into 90 degrees of bank, dropped chaff, pulled a 6G turn, did 90 degrees of turn, reversed my turn, dropped more chaff, And in that second turn, one missile went over us. Another one exploded in a farmer's field right below us in a brilliant fireball that just wiped out my night vision, almost blinded me. I were wings level, headed for the mountains. We landed back aboard Enterprise at 5 o'clock in the morning with 15 minutes of fuel remaining. Did you go to the bathroom first? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. That is quite a story. Yeah. We did have some aircraft losses in our deployment. Uh, we lost two aircraft under the VA-75, but our sister squadron and Enterprise lost six aircraft, 50% of our A-6As, and they lost their commanding officer and their executive officer. Well. Even though we had, it, uh, had those losses, I think we had it pretty good. We flew in an air-conditioned cockpit, got three hot meals a day, and slept between sheets at night. The guys that had it tough in that war were the ones that had to fight it on the ground. And my hat is off to them.
1: Captain Zacharias, that is that is an amazing story. And I'm, uh, thank you very much for your service. And, uh, you know, I hate to use the word luck.
3: <laughs> yeah, you're
4: right. <laughs> <A lot of laughs> because luck.
1: you showed, well, there's some luck involved, but you used a lot of skill yeah. that, that, that night as well, or that morning as, as well. And um, I'm sure that uh, those people, your your crewmates, uh, appreciated your skill yep. that day. Yep. So how many missions did you fly? 87. 87. Yep. Was that the most harrowing? Um uh, that was the most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of an understatement, putting yeah, it that yeah. way. Well, thank you very much for, for telling your
5: story.
4: Okay. And you, you are a Willow Valley resident, right? Yes, I am. Uh, I've been there for 13 years, and it's a great place. And it's a lot more comfortable than that cockpit, uh, I'm uh, sure. I'll say.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk to a couple other Willow Valley residents. The Hollingers hosted an engaged Vietnamese refugee couple in 1975, Many people, when they think about the Vietnam War here in central Pennsylvania, will remember the Vietnamese refugees that came to Fort Indiantown Gap in 1975 and then were resettled throughout the country. Tell us your story. How did you—why uh, did you decide to sponsor a refugee family, and just how did it happen?
2: During those years, I was managing WDACFM, the Voice of Christmas Which is Radio, right down the road here. —and urging our listeners— that all of us listening are refugees or descendants of refugees. And there are those now at Indiantown Gap. And would you have either your family or your church sponsor these refugees into our community? And then that was recorded, and I heard my own announcement, and I felt guilty.
6: Well, uh, he came home, and he said, I'm feeling guilty today. I'm asking our listeners to do something that we could do. We had a big farmhouse. we had room. I was happy he said it because I was thinking the same thing. And so that's how we f- first put our names in and uh, made a couple trips to Indian Town Gap and took into our home. They were newlyweds. They had, had gotten married at Indian Town Gap. They had, uh, he had to get out fast with his life to uh, sa- to save his life, because he was with the military. He had been trained over here in the States as a pilot, but uh, he knew his life wouldn't be worth anything when Saigon fell.
1: Who is he? What? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's OK, that's OK. Uh,
6: well, their names were Chung and Ta Do, and um, we brought them home to the farmhouse, and from the time they walked in the door, they were part of our family. Uh,
1: well, I, I think probably one of the big questions that many people had at the time, and maybe even since, why? Now, you're very, you were very involved in, in the church, WDAC, Religious Christian Radio Station, okay. but why? Why did you want to do it?
6: you want to answer that?
2: Well, simply because um, our commission by Christ is to go into all the world. Here the world had come into us. And this was an opportunity to serve God, to serve Christ, by taking these people into our family. And um, as it turned out, uh, they themselves were Christians and are still devout Catholic Christians. And we've been privileged to have all three of their children's weddings in Southern California, where there are now a million refugees from Vietnam, uh, to their weddings, And just last week, they were in this auditorium to hear and see the last half of our chorale concert. So there's been a a love relationship, real family relationship uh, to this family. Only seven of the maybe 11 in that family came and merged with our 15. Mm -hmm. So it's just a wonderful uh, blessing as it turned out to uh, have had this experience with the Doe and their family.
1: Take me back to 1975, though, when the couple came to your your farmhouse. I mean, it's it's a culture shock to begin (laughs) with, coming from uh, a foreign country to the United States to begin with, but coming from one that, as we heard earlier, had been torn by war Mm. for decades. Mm -hmm. And... Now, in 1975, as, as Saigon is falling, uh, the South of Vietnam, South Vietnam is, is falling, and as you said, a lot of people's lives in danger. Tell me about them and becoming part of your family in 1975.
6: My first thought when we brought them home was, we'll have to live differently. And Paul said, no, we'll live exactly the way we always have will make them part of our family.
1: Why, wait, excuse me, can I interrupt for just one sure. second? Why, why did you think you had to live differently? Well, I
6: knew, it, I knew it would be such a culture shock for them, and so I thought we'd have to be more formal or something, and we just decided no. We had a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, and um, our 15-year-old daughter would come home from high school, go upstairs to her bedroom. The guest room was across the hall from her bedroom, and she'd be up there for hours. Only to come down in time to eat, and I'd say, "What were you doing all that time?" And she'd say, "I was talking to Tall. Tall didn't speak a word of English."
1: (laughs) She wanted a captive audience.
6: But (laughs) she was twenty; Carrie was fifteen. She was like a big sister, and uh, they just became our children. And to learn about their culture, sometimes cooking side by side um,
2: to eat some of their food. What What do you love? Chuck y'all! It's like a spring roll, but it has yeah. pork and other things in it, and nothing can compare. <laughs> so you learned a lot too. Oh, yes. we sure did. And when they were up there talking, they had a Vietnamese to English uh, translation uh, dictionary. Dictionary. So that's how they l- learned each other's languages somewhat.
1: What did they have? Uh, a lot of trauma. I mean, what, was there a lot of healing on mm-hmm. their part? Yeah. I
6: think so. They didn't talk about it. I, I look back and I think we didn't really talk a lot about what they had come through. Um, they, I don't even know how they managed to reget together. Uh, they were engaged, but they got out separately. Um, but they could not leave Indian Town Gap, and we went back years later to see those barracks. And boy, they weren't very glamorous. And they couldn't leave till they were sponsored. And I have to say, they are the best at showing gratitude. They have, oh, in 42 years, they've never stopped thanking us. And in a way I say they have thanked us with their lives mm-hmm. because they are so productive and, and so hard working, two and three jobs at a time. Mm-hmm. And they raise their children to be so polite and thoughtful and uh, we're just so proud of them. They became citizens years ago
1: that is something that uh, you did hear often about the Vietnamese mm-hmm. refugees who are at Indian Town mm-hmm. Gap, about how grateful they really were, and again think about the experiences that they had growing up, and especially, you know, being involved in the in the military, but. That was one of the first things I remember. The time distinctly, I lived just a few miles down the road from a Gap at the oh. time, and I remember distinctly that was the first thing that everyone said about the Vietnamese refugees, mm-hmm. is that these people just appreciate what they even living in those barracks. Yeah. And you're right, if you, I mean those, there are those are Spartan barracks. That's they for really sure. Are. They were you know they built really in the are. 1940s for. She, she
2: wept when yeah. she returned. She wept hard. Mm. But their son, when he was 16, had a banner in his bedroom, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and he and his wife are in the diocese ministry pretty much ever since in the Catholic Church, in the Vietnamese Catholic Church in Southern California. So
1: how did they get to Southern California? By way of Texas.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay. So they went southwest first.
6: (laughs) They they went down there first for just a couple years, but they already knew some Vietnamese. They kept contact with people. And then there were so many in San Jose, and that's where they ended up. Do you have time for a really quick story? Sure. With them last week was their little two-year-old grandson. He was born very prematurely because his mother, their youngest daughter, his mother, Um, her blood pressure went sky-high, and they had to take the baby. And Tall, now the grandmother, kept telling me when they were here, she would cup her hands and say, Oh, so small, so small. I cry and cry, and I pray God, and I cry and cry. And then she said, In Vietnam? And she just threw her hand away. But she said, In America? And it it was her way of saying how grateful they are they're here because that little grandson wouldn't be here if he had been born in Vietnam. They're so grateful.
1: Thank you very much for telling your story. I mean, that's, uh, I think your your story, I'm glad you did tell that story because that that, that says a lot. Paul and Sylvia Hollinger, Willow Valley residents, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. God bless you. Our pleasure. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Willow Valley Communities in Willow Street, Lancaster County. It is a Smart Talk Road Trip. Today's Smart Talk Road Trip live remote broadcast is supported by Roof Advisory and Willow Valley Communities. We're talking about the Vietnam, the Vietnam War. Ken Burns documentary coming up uh, September 17th. There is a sneak preview this weekend, Sunday night at 930 on WITF TV, so we encourage you to tune in then. Mike Perry and Jeff Hawks are from the uh, U.S. Army Heritage Education Center, uh, Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. Just last weekend, uh, had Army Heritage Days, and they've been kind enough to join us today talk about oral histories, a little bit more about Vietnam. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. How did Army Heritage Days go, by the way?
5: It was the best day we've ever had because of the support that we received from you, announcing it to your visitors, and then also we used Facebook and everything. Uh, We probably had over ten thousand. Uh, over the weekend, and uh, uh, it was a great event. We focused on uh, armor vehicles, so uh, we actually had them going through an obstacle course. It was a good good day for the center, uh, and just one we're with the foundation, we're their friends group, and we're the guys trying to promote uh, the advancement of the facility and to continue it, to expand it.
1: You know, we often on Smart Talk, you have been gracious enough to provide us with the many guests over, over the years because we know that history is one of uh, the, the topics that our audience is most interested in. But talk a little bit about what AHAC does, and
5: then I'm going to turn it over to Vietnam and oral yeah. histories. Um, the Heritage Center started off as an archives uh, to focus on the individual soldier. We brought in letters, diaries, personal experience, monographs, photos, in order to balance the official record because we all know what the, what's held at the National Archives, uh, which tells the official version of government and what the general experience and what the, the soldier experience at the private and captain level, say the, the company level, completely, completely different, and we wanted to provide that balance. So they started this facility back in the 60s. And then by uh, the mid 90s, it was the largest archives. In fact, Ken Burns used the collection for his Civil War documentary. About 85% of his photos came out of our collection. Really? I didn't know that, that high a percentage. Yes, yeah. it was uh, significant. Matter of fact, the staff worked for months for it. Oh, okay. Um, but in uh, the, around 2001, the Army made a decision to expand the, com- uh, the campus to uh, build a museum in conjunction with the archives. And that's what we've been doing really since uh, 2003.
1: All right. So let's uh, move ahead to Vietnam, Jeff. Uh, You, I mentioned earlier, the WITF is collecting a number of uh, stories from veterans and people who lived during the era, uh, during the the Vietnam War. You were part of that, collecting some of the stories as as well. Why is this so important that we have these stories?
3: It's uh, important on a number of different levels. For one thing, it's part of the historical record. This is where history comes from. Uh, it's, it's not somebody writing down the events as they happen. It's people recollecting the events afterwards. So if we don't collect these stories, an important piece of the history is going to go missing. And so that's one of the reasons why we feel it's critical to record as many oral histories, to interview as many veterans as possible. Uh, on a personal level, and a community level, Uh, it's a significant event for the veterans. Uh, They get to tell their story and to feel that their contributions are valued, uh, that their contributions are preserved. For many of the veterans, it's the first time they've ever told these stories. Uh, We often hear from the family members, oh, we've never heard these stories before. And a lot of veterans find it easier to talk to Uh, an interested stranger than to a family member and and tell these stories. And
1: Vietnam is different. I mentioned to you uh, that, and and Mike, we had uh, worked together on this too, that uh, I had the privilege of interviewing about 30 World War II veterans for Ken Burns' The War series about World War II. And I heard many of the same things from their family members. Oh, that's the first time we've heard these stories. But Vietnam is different, isn't it?
3: It is. Um, I'm happy to report that of the veterans I interviewed, I think every single one of them said that they, they didn't face any um, social pressure here in central Pennsylvania. They they said there's a pretty patriotic area. They supported the soldiers well. But there was a national sense of not supporting the veterans. They didn't get the welcome home that uh, that they really deserved. And so a lot of them are still struggling with that, uh, struggling with the the lack of a welcome home, a lack of acknowledgement. And so our efforts are part of the effort to change that, to make sure they understand that their efforts were appreciated.
5: There's another aspect is that uh, if you look at the World War II generation that you focused on, uh, when they came home, they came home as a unit. They quite often fought and deployed as a unit. So they had a cohesiveness uh, that continued. And Right after the war, I talked to one divisional association, old Third Armored Division Association. Uh, They decided to go up and have their first reunion three years after the war in Chicago, and there were over 30,000 of them. And many of the World War uh, II-era units held reunions beginning fairly after the war, and there's still some of them, they'll get the last four or five today. Because of the nature of the Vietnam manpower system where we did individual replacements and and, and soldiers did not have, in a sense, a cohesive unit that they belonged to that carried them there and then back, Uh, many of the soldiers had no connection. They didn't have these reunions until just recently. So they really – the World War II generation, when they got together, they talked to each other. The Vietnam generation didn't necessarily have that in the same powerful way. And and that's why it's important now to start doing this and to to let them – talk about their experiences
3: many of them essentially came home alone and it was also a very different experience in the world war ii generation where you withdrew from europe to england you embarked upon a ship you had a long sea voyage home uh these guys are getting on a plane in saigon and 24 hours later they're home they're alone they're not in the military anymore uh their buddies aren't around uh and it was it was difficult for them
1: You know, and I also think about how Vietnam veterans have been portrayed over the years in the media, for example, uh, that, you know, we heard actually for the first time about post-traumatic stress syndrome in relationship to the Vietnam veteran, and that very often that's how the media would portray, you know, Vietnam vets in movies and, and things like that. I have to think that that made them feel even more alone.
3: Many of the veterans I talked to uh, struggled with that. And part of it is the, the issues of PTSD, but part of it is also not belonging to a community where other people are experiencing the same thing mm-hmm. and, and, and really understand the experience. That's another reason why the oral histories are important. It's an opportunity for veterans to say, hey, this is what I did. This is what I saw. This is what I know.
1: We have a question here from the audience, sir. What is your question? Uh,
8: my name is Jeff Butch. I served in uh, Mike 3 7 in uh, Vietnam, 69 to 71. Thank you for your service. And uh, thank you. Home. Uh, in reference to your question about you know, World War II versus Vietnam, uh, when I came home from Vietnam and I came into San Francisco, flew into San Francisco, we weren't treated very well. And that was a big problem for me. And even still is today. Uh, it, it hurt me to think that the American public treated me as if I was nobody or, or, or didn't deserve some kind of respect since I served in Vietnam. I did what my country asked me to do. And uh, I felt it, was, it was really hurt me to know that the people thought that about us veterans. And then when I came back to, uh, I flew back to Harrisburg. I'm from Lebanon, Pennsylvania, originally. When I flew back to Harrisburg, the only one at the airport was my mom. My mom was there in a the car waiting for me and I got off the plane got got my stuff and got in the car and that was it. There was nobody else there and no no bands and no uh, people or crowds or the media and uh, for us as Vietnam veterans and for me especially that really hurt us as a as a, as a service man and as a uh, citizen of the country. And I told a couple of Vietnam veterans them this fact when when the protesters protested in Vietnam my unit would get hit. We'd get hit sometimes by the MVA and VC. So every time they protested, which they had a right to do, uh, we got hit and somebody got killed, somebody got wounded, somebody got maimed. And uh, it was sad that that, that had to happen. No. And we fought for ourselves as a unit when we fought. And we came home, we, we fought for ourselves because we realized that we all, our goal was to get back to our family and get home. Again, thank you very much
1: for your service. And I reiterate what, absolutely. Unfortunately, there are too many stories like that.
3: Yeah, and uh, actually quite a few of the veterans mentioned uh, San Francisco as a place where uh, the the welcome was not uh, what they had hoped it would be. Mm-hmm.
1: So. I, I should mention, we only have about 90 seconds left, that... Uh we, WITF, will be doing uh, a lot. There will be other programs like this talking about Vietnam between now and uh, the Ken Burns documentary uh, starting on uh, September 19th. What about AHAC? Uh, what do you have in mind as far as Vietnam? I mean, you've been working. Well, This isn't new for you.
5: No, the center's been um, created an exhibit uh, two years ago that uh, focused on uh, Vietnam. It'll continue for the period of uh, at least another year and a half. Uh, because the center is, you're involved in the 50th commemoration of the Vietnam War. We're involved in the 100th commemoration of World War One, uh, and the center tries to bring that all out uh, in order to make sure that uh, the story of the soldiers and the I would say service members don't want to forget the the other services, but the the contributions of our service members are not forgotten, and that's really what the center is designed to do.
1: You know, in our last 30 seconds, one thing that I. Uh, do want to mention is that something you said Jeff that is very true Uh, we often then we hear this often that we are losing about a a thousand uh, I don't know what the figure is nowadays but a thousand World War II vets dying every day and that we're losing those stories forever it has been 50 years since Vietnam we're going to lose those stories too so Jeff Hawks Mike Perry thank you very much for being with us today Our next Smart Talk road trip is June 21st. We will be in Littitz in Lancaster County at the General Sutter Inn, talking about a little history at that point as well. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, WITF's Real Life, Real Issues Juvenile Justice Series continues. We hear from a prosecutor and a judge. So long from Willow Valley Communities.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. The Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org spine.